Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. So in the course of studying through systematic theology, obviously there are categories of thought um, that just big columns of, of the way that we process through building out a systematic theology, a thorough theology. And it, and it generally starts with either a foundation in an understanding of God or the Word. We started with the Word. We spent four weeks studying uh, bibliology, and then we moved on from that to theology proper, a focus on God, who He is, and what He's done, so His, his being, His nature, and then also his works. And then we moved on from that, and uh, Jeff's been teaching through anthropology. And along with anthropology, a study of, of man, along with that generally is a, a focus on man in sinful state. Um, so you can do a whole category of study in what's called hamartiology. And then after that, now that you've seen God in his holiness and in his being, and then you've seen man in his fallen and sinful state, the question then becomes, Right. Well, what is God going to do or what what can be done about man being in this fallen and sinful state separated from God? And then the study of Christ comes in. So that's the systematic overflow uh, that we're looking at. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be studying Christology. And I want to kick it off by just kind of doing a, a thought experiment with you. If you were to read through the New Testament Gospels, um, dealing with the life and ministry of Christ. What, if, if you could maybe categorize big ideas that come out of that study, what are the big ideas that you would take away? Just in your own study of the Gospels, what would you know about this being, this person that we call Jesus Christ? Creator. Creator, okay. Anything else? Son of God. Son of man is human. Son of man, human. Right? Anything else coming to mind? I mean, I know there's tons of things coming to mind, so you can list out more than just one, but so far we've thought in the categories of creator. A creator falls into a specific category within the categories of beings. Creator falls into a divine category. Son of God also falls into a divine category. Son of man, human, falls into that creature category. Right? So, what's that? Redeemer. Redeemer. Okay, that, that gets to the, the works that Jesus has done, but it also kind of splits those two categories up if we understand the role of a Redeemer rightly. But yeah, anything else? Teacher. teacher, yeah. He taught with an authority that no one else in the world taught with, and he was recognized as such. So yeah, he was a great teacher. Servant. Servant, yeah. He served the people, but he also served his disciples in pretty profound ways that shape the way or should shape the way we serve one another, the way we see each other. 
Anything else? Miracle worker. Miracle worker. Did things that can only be explained as a miracle, supernatural realities invading natural space. There's so many things that we can say as we think on Christ, as we think on what we've seen in the Scriptures, specifically if we just look at the Gospels and we see His life and His teaching and we see the stories about His, his, his birth and we see the, the cross, we see the death, burial, and resurrection, we see His uh, resurrected life and His teaching after that. There's just, there are all these different things that we see about Christ. But we generally think about Jesus in two categories. And you guys nailed it right from the start. We think about him in terms of his deity and his humanity. And, and if you read the New Testament, you just can't get away from those two categories. There's all other categories, but you can't get away from those two categories. Jesus was fully human. He comes into the world as a newborn baby. We, we read that story in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. He comes into the world as a newborn baby helpless and dependent upon, at least in the case of his mother, probably a teenager, completely dependent upon a teenage mother and a father for his very life and his sustenance. He was protected from being killed as a child, right? Herod wanted to kill him and his parents had to flee into Egypt. Why? Because he was susceptible to death. We, we know that because later on he dies on a cross, but even as a baby, he was susceptible to death. He was fully human. He had a very fragile life, just like ours. We know that he grew up in a very normal fashion, like other Jewish boys in, in the town of Nazareth. Right? He was a carpenter's son, and he went to, uh, he went to the temple with his parents at, at, at certain appointed times. And, and they even got three days down the road before they even realized he was not with them, which tells me that he was probably like all the other kids in, in some regards. And, and they just expected he was with everyone else, but he wasn't. And then they had to go back and find him, and they found him in the temple. Jesus ex- expressed emotions during his life. He, he had physical limitations that are common to all of us. Um, in John 4, we see that he's been traveling and he was tired and hungry. And so he, he goes and he leans against the well in the center of the town to rest and seek refreshment. And then he has a conversation with someone when he's there. He ate food. He drank wine, real wine, fermented wine. He walked from town to town and got tired. He embraced his disciples. He slept when night came. He shows deep emotion for those who are close to him. Like when Lazarus dies, he's weeping openly in front of everyone. Um, we see him show compassion on a group of people who don't have a shepherd. I mean, he's, a, he's fully human. And then the cross shows just how human he is when his body is beaten and torn apart and then nailed to a tree and raised. And he is in agony as he breathes out his last. Jesus was thoroughly human, and you can't read the New Testament Gospels and come away with any other understanding than, yes, he is fully human. But that's not the only understanding you come away with. You come away with a different understanding. The New Testament is abundantly clear that Jesus was not only fully human, but he was also fully God. He walked on water. 
He commanded the sea and the wind. He turned water into wine. He fed thousands with bread that never grew in a field and with fish that never swam in an ocean. He raised the dead back to life. He cured every ailment and disease. There were even cities he would go to and it would say that he, he healed everyone that was there. Not just the handful of people over in the corner, but everyone was healed. Can you imagine a city where there is no sickness? That, Jesus experienced that. Jesus was the cause of that. He cast out demons and then commanded them to be silent and they respected him because they knew who he was even though nobody else did. He spoke of himself as being the Son of God the Father and at more than one point in the Gospel of John, he gives himself the name that God declared to be his own. I am. There's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Don't lose sight of that. When Moses asked God what his name was so he could tell the people of Israel who had sent him, God says to him, tell them I am has sent you. And Jesus says over and over and over, I am. And they knew what he was saying because when he said it, they picked up stones and wanted to kill him. And he just walks right through the middle of them like it wasn't a thing, like he just pushed pause, you know. He had that uh, Zach Morris moment. Time out. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. And that's okay. We appreciate it. <laughs> so what are we supposed to do with these New Testament accounts? I mean, they, they seem to be conflicting. They, we don't have a category you know, well, we do because we have a theological heritage, but back in the day, no one had a, a category for this man who did these things and said these things, who, who experienced life as a human and yet was fully divine and that was on display. Clearly a man, clearly God. What are we to do with this? I think about the C.S. Lewis quote um, where he says, he puts this tension about the identity of Jesus in perspective. He says that the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus is, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. And Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something even worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. Y'all know that quote, right? Hopefully you do. This tension about who Jesus is, it still exists today. Christology is one of those branches of systematic theology that's constantly under attack. In fact, um, Ligonier, the organization Ligonier, put out a Ligonier statement on Christology, the Word made flesh, and you can get this online. I'm going to try to get you guys a, a copy of this before we're done teaching over the next four weeks. This is a great statement. It's very helpful and it's short, so it's easy to read. But the reason they put this out was because before R.C. Sproul died, he, he said that one of the, one of the greatest uh, battles that is going to be fought in, in the years to come, in his mind, was going to be over the identity of Christ. This is still going on. It's still an important battle. And as we come to the Scriptures, and that's where we have to, we have to fight this battle. We, we come to the Scriptures and we have to make sense out of what we see. 
so that we can grab a hold of the truth of God with the arms of faith. And so my approach to Christology is not going to be that we talk about the, the, the different essences and all the different Christological heresies throughout the day. We can do that. You can read that stuff really easily. Here's what I want to do. I want us to look at the four passages in the New Testament explicitly referred to as Christological passages. And I just want us to walk through them. I'm, I'm not going to be here next week. It's going to be uh, spring break for my family. So we're all going to be in Louisiana eating crawfish. Sorry that you're not going to be there. It's going to be awesome. Um, so we're going to be there. Jeff's going to teach. And, and the four Christological passages that we're going to look at are going to be John 1, 1 through 18, which we'll talk about tonight. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And the reason those are called Christological passages is because it's in those passages specifically that we, we most clearly see uh, our understanding of Christ in that systematic framework come into, sh come into being or come into shape and clarity. When we think about Jesus theologically, we tend to think in the categories of uh, His humanity and His deity. We think in the categories of his person and his work, like John mentioned earlier, his being the redeemer. We think about his, uh, his incarnation, the miracles, the grand miracles of the faith, uh, incarnation, resurrection. I preach on those each year. Uh, we think about his first advent and his second advent. We think about his humiliation and his exaltation. Or maybe you think about the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. All of that, all of those categories of thought, they make up our understanding of Christology. So if you want to go do a deep dive on that, be my guest, feel free, it'd be a great study. We're going to cover most of that just in those four Christological passages. So. That's the, the introduction to where we're going to be now. Let's look at John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning... Well, let me get these on so I can see it a little better. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Now, there is there's so much that we could learn about, so much that we could think about, so many different categories of thought here. But there are some things that just kind of jump out to us, at, jump off the page, if you will. First of all, let's just make sure we understand what's going on in this book. This is John. This is one of the apostles. This is the apostle that is referred to as the apostle whom Jesus loved. This was the apostle that was with Jesus in the upper room, leaning against his breast. We, we understand that. This was also the apostle that when Jesus was on the cross, he said, Behold your mother. So he was entrusting his mother's care, or spiritual care at least, into, uh, to John. So this, was, this is who, who wrote this book. And John's gospel comes at the, the very end of all the other Gospels. It's the last one to be written. And John's Gospel is written, if you read the, the four Gospels, we refer to the three synoptics for a reason. They're, they're very similar in their approach. John's approach is different. He tells the same stories, but his approach and the way he puts it together is a little different. There's a, there's a thematic, symbolic nature to the way John writes. He, he likes sevens, right? I've, I've mentioned that on Sunday mornings. But, but John, in, in his book or in his gospel, he, he focuses in on all of the things that are readily available to us in the gospels. The miracles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the passion of Jesus. But he starts his book in a way that draws our mind back to something else. He starts the book right here, the first three words, with something that draws our mind back to the very beginning, right? to the very first book, when he says... In the beginning. And with those simple, three simple words, he's not, he's not just trying to make us think about um, Genesis, but he's also giving us a frame of reference to understand what he's about to tell us about this being that he calls the Word, and then he defines him later on. In the beginning causes us to think about the, the really big questions of life. Like, like how did we get here? Um, What's the purpose of it? How did life begin? And that search for basic stuff is not just a, a question that John asked. This is, this is a question that was common amongst philosophers. In fact, the word logos, and yes, it's logos, not logos. Logos is a, is a Greek term that was highly debated amongst Greek philosophers. Uh, Aristotle, Plato, and others would talk about this concept of logos. Well, John is taking that concept and he's giving it a name. John uses the same word they use and he, and he says to us that in the beginning, the logos was. I don't know if you've, if you've studied any philosophy, then that'll probably go deeper in your mind. If you haven't, it's okay, you don't have to. But John uses this term that has a broad field of meaning. And rather than just define it in philosophical terms, we're going to let John define it for us. Because John tells us a lot about this word, this logos. First, he tells us, in the beginning was the word. What does that mean to say, in the beginning was the word? What is he talking about when he draws our attention to the beginning and the word being present? Any ideas? 
You mean the, the fact that Jesus, his being, um, you know, predated his earthly birth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which might not be obvious, I guess. I mean, it should be obvious to us by now, but, you yeah. <laughs> Well, it, and it's obvious to us by now because of the theological heritage we have, because of the explanations of these verses. But to the individuals who were trying to make sense out of what they were seeing in Jesus' life, John just dropped a bombshell on them. That the, the word, which he defines as a he, which he later defines as Jesus Christ, the word was present in the beginning of all things. Like we, we talked about in, in our study of, of God, and we talked about the uh, unique attributes that God possesses, and eternality is one of them. And John is attributing eternality to Jesus Christ, to the Word. The Word was not created. The Word simply was. In the beginning was the Word. If we look back across the sea of time and that, that has come before us, we realize that John is saying to us that there was never nothing. Because this being was there. The Word already was. Never created, never became, never developed, simply was. In the same way that God is. The Word in the beginning, the Word was. And in the beginning, the Word was with God, John tells us. The Word was with God. Um, this is fabulous because John has just told us that God was there in the beginning and that the Word was there with God in the beginning. So in case we, we didn't understand the first part of the, the verse, he, he now says, okay, the Word was with God, meaning that the Word is in some way distinct from God, not the same being. We're talking about two different beings. The Word was not simply with God in terms of proximity, though. It's not like God had a little buddy. There's an intimate relationship between God and the Word. And this is where we get into some of those theological wranglings. The Word was with God. He is different. And yet, in the very next verse, and the Word was God. Now there's a similarity. This is crucial to our understanding. Theologically, we say that the eternal Word is a different or distinct person yet he is one in essence with God the Father. And that's what I think is being confirmed here when he says the Word was with and then the Word was God. A better translation would be something like the Word was fully God. All that God is in His divinity, in His eternality, in His power, and in His holiness, the Word is. The Word was and is just as much God as God the Father is God. That's what John is saying in this phrase. It's very rich. We learn a lot of theology right here in just a few words. And then he goes on and he says, He was in the beginning with God. Now there, there's a, the referent changed. We've got a proper noun, word, and now we have a pronoun, he. The word was a he. The word was in the beginning. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word is a he. So now it's like John is trying to come down out of the clouds, right? He's talking about all these big theological concepts, all these philosophical concepts that the Greeks like to argue about. And he, he comes down out of the clouds and he says, you could point to him. 
He. The word is no abstract construction of a first century Jewish mind. The word is no myth. The word is a he, a he like no other. And this just baffles our minds, right? This is the mystery of mysteries. Um, but what gives me great comfort is that, that this is not a mystery that God chose to keep hidden from us. This is a mystery that God chose to reveal to us. He makes it clear. He makes it plain to us. And what He reveals to us, we might not be able to fully comprehend. We may not be able to fully wrap our minds around it like, like Paul in Romans, who, who has known the mind of the Lord, right? We get to that point at times, and yet this truth like I mentioned earlier, it's something we grab a hold of with the hands of faith. We put our trust and our confidence and our hope there, and it gives anchor to our souls in the midst of life. So all that John is saying here relates to Jesus, and, and that becomes a little more clear because later on down the, down the way, he's going to actually define it and talk about Jesus Christ, right? And, and this is all telling us about Jesus as the divine word who existed for all eternity. He's eternal. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that we can... Def- when we start thinking about the word eternal, it's kind of hard for us to, to comprehend. I mean, we understand that there's a definition for it, but we don't really have a great reference for what does it mean for something to be eternal, to, to always have been um, Pastors and theologians have used terms and ideas to try to carry that across. Like, tomorrow is not simply a time that Jesus knows about. Tomorrow is a time that He is. Eternity is not just something that Jesus teaches us about. Eternity is something that He he defines eternity. His existence defines eternity. We wouldn't understand eternity unless there was an eternal being. I mean, there's just, I don't know how to do this. We just have one little simple word, eternality. And there's just so much behind it. But the eternality was very important to John. Because John didn't just mention Jesus being in the beginning here in, John, in his gospel. He also mentioned it in 1 John. So I'll read 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Right, so this divine nature, this fact that Jesus exists outside of time and space, and yet He came down into time and space is something of the mystery that John is trying to reveal to us. And it was important to John. It should be important also to us. John was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. Can you, I mean, I know at some level, as a believer, you've thought about that. What would it have been like to be alive, to see Jesus? What would it have been like to be a disciple of Jesus? I mean, you know, apart from all the persecution stuff, it would have been really cool to see Jesus. And I'm, I'm just kind of thinking in my mind, what if, what if John, when he sits down in like 85 A.D., you know, years and years later, and he's just recalling all of the things, all the stories, all the things he saw, right? When he writes, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. Think about the things that John saw. I've already mentioned some of them, but um, I'm pretty sure that he never forgot the time that Jesus walked on water, Right? Like, you don't forget that. Nor do you forget Peter making a fool of himself and you know, razzing your buddy over that. You don't forget the feeding of the 5,000. 
You, you don't forget the things that Jesus said, especially those moments that are written down, right? There's just so many things that would have been running through his mind, and he had a front row seat to this. He got to lean in to this. So, and, and I would imagine that at some level it was even hard for him to understand. He was clearly a man, and yet there was something more. And this is how he, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, helps us to try to grab a hold of that. As John wrote this down, he was aware that Jesus was a man and Jesus was, was the Son of God, the unique Son of God. He was more than just a physical being. There was a spiritual life in him that could not be clearly defined by just calling him a man. Jesus is God in the flesh, or it was John who calls him Emmanuel, right? God with us. When we sing songs to Christ on Sunday mornings or at the house and you turn on the music or when you're in your car, when you're singing songs to Christ, we are not simply singing songs to a religious leader. We're singing songs to the one who created the world. We're singing songs to the Alpha and the Omega. When we bow and pray, when we stand and declare, when we sing with our hands lifted up and our eyes closed or our eyes open and our hands by our side, we're singing to the living Son of God. We don't ever need to forget that. I don't think John ever forgot that. In Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13, it says, Behold, I am coming soon. This is Jesus talking. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is calling himself the Alpha and the Omega. And that's, a, that's, a, that's terminology that is used of God the Father. The beginning and the end. There is nothing that came before Him. There is nothing that will exist after Him. He is ultimate reality. All of life is dependent upon Him. And He bids us to, to come to Him, to find peace and rest, right? He tells us that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. We're supposed to come to Him and lay ourselves down at His feet and find forgiveness and purpose and meaning and eternal life and all of this. There is no being like the Word. Now, I've only dealt with four, yeah, I think four of the things that we learn about the Word. There's two more. So we've learned this about the Word so far. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word is a person, a He. And the fifth thing we learn is that the Word made all things. Look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We, we call Jesus the agent of creation, the divine instrument through which God made all things. And as the maker of all things, we say this about God, as the maker of all things, he is also the rightful owner of all things. He is the, the, appropriate, the only appropriate master of all things. And I always like to point this out, and Cheyenne chuckles about it. Do you know what the Greek word all things means? All things. <laughs> all things. 
Everything belongs to him. Everything owes its existence to him. Everything came into existence because of him. He is the rightful owner of everything. And as we're going to read in Colossians, he upholds everything by his strong right hand. He holds the universe together. At least that's what Paul tells us in Colossians. Psalm 33, 6, By the Lord's decree the heavens were made. By a mere word from His mouth all the stars in the sky were created. We know the story of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. There's this divine word spoken, and it is a creative word. Well, we learn in the New Testament that that divine word was Jesus. As the owner of all things, as the agent of creation, the creator of all things, Jesus is also the rightful judge of all things. And we learned um, as we, we studied God's wrath that Jesus is going to, he has been appointed by the Father to be the final judge of all the earth. And we're reading that in the Revelation. And human arguments uh, for why God should allow us into his heaven and into his presence, they carry no weight. We are answerable to him. His rules apply. Not ours. The Word made all things. And then verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, there's two things he's talking about here. Life and light. Life and light. And you, you have to know, if you don't already, you have to know that just about everything I've said is debated and nuanced in theological discussion. Just about everything. I'm teaching from a Reformed Baptist Protestant perspective, right? So um, there's going to be all kinds of different ideas. But, and some of those are within orthodoxy. Like, what does it mean by life and what does it mean by light? Are we talking about physical realities? Are we talking about spiritual realities or some combination of those things? I believe that John is saying that Jesus possessed the authority to animate all of creation in a physical sense, and he is opening the door to spiritual life. So I think it's, it's both and. That's my personal interpretation of this verse. John is not simply referring to the physical life that animates all creatures. He's talking about spiritual life as well. And we all have life in us, right? We, some of us may have our life well, not life, but energy ebbing at this point, but hearts are still beating, synapses are still firing. You know, there is life within us. Um, our, our brains are functioning at the level that, you know, caffeine is allowing at this point. Um, so we can all say that we take part in the life-giving power of Christ, but we can't all say, or at least we, we can, but not all can say, that we are taking part in the light, the spiritual reality that Jesus comes to bring. And I think what, what John is doing is he's, he's helping us understand that both in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm, we are completely dependent upon Jesus. If we didn't already know that, he wants us to know that. Some people rejected him, obviously. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, there was a man sent from God. He came to bear witness about the light. He was not the light. But the light shined and his own people rejected it. Right, that's talking about the spiritual life, the spiritual reality of the gospel. This is a reference to the gospel of Jesus. 
Christ came into the world, laid aside his heavenly glory, laid aside all of the, the things that we can imagine in our minds. He laid those things aside in order to live amongst the rebellious people of the world, in order to live the righteous life we could not hope to live, and then die the sacrificial death that we deserve to die. He willingly gave up his body. The, the heir of heaven willingly gave up his life in order for us to have light and for his light to overcome the darkness that is in us. So Jesus holds the keys for life in a physical sense. He also holds the keys for eternity or eternal life in a spiritual sense. And that's what John is telling us about the word. So those are the five things that we learn about just in these few verses about Christ. But there's more, right? There's more to his life than him simply being divine. And we'll learn more as we study the other Christological passages. We'll learn about his creation. We'll learn about his resurrection. We'll learn about his exaltation and humiliation, all of those things. But we also need to, to be reminded that he is not just fully God, but he's truly man. So go back and look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. So the word, the one that was with God, was fully God, the one that was a he, the one that has life and light within him, the one is the agent of creation. This word became flesh. This is the mystery of mysteries. And when we study this, uh, we, we tend to just we don't have language to describe. We, we can't fully understand how this happens. That's why it's called one of the two grand miracles of the faith. There are many miracles that occur throughout Scripture that are revealed to us, but there are two what we refer to as grand miracles. The incarnation, God becoming a man, and then the resurrection, life coming out of death. Or life going through death and coming out the other side, however you want to say it. Those are the two grand miracles. There's, there's really no, I mean, there's a lot of human terms that we would try to use to, to describe this, but we can't fully comprehend it. We don't have a scientific formula for how this works. We don't know. It's the work of God. That's why it's called a miracle. But we do know this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Which means this, that divine being that was with God and all that, he had a human body. He had a heart beating. He had a brain functioning. He had eyes that could see. He had a body. He had human weaknesses. We see those in the Gospels. He had human emotions, human experiences. He was flesh and blood. He got tired at the end of every day. He knew what it was to feel hunger and sadness and grief and joy. Jesus felt the sun on his face. And I'm sure he felt the, you know, the, the, the waves kind of rolling in around the Sea of Galilee when the wind was blowing and his feet were in the water. I mean, he knows what that feels like. He was flesh and blood. And here's where Greek you know, John is just losing Greek philosophers. He's, he's losing anyone who's in the, the realm of, of pagan mythology because the idea that something divine, that a divine being would get its hands dirty... It's just foreign to pagan mythology. But he became flesh and dwelt among us. 
He experienced life in this world like we experience it, except he went through it without sinning against the Father. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect he was tempted as we, yet he was without sin. The Bible tells us he grew up into manhood. He learned obedience through what he suffered. That's an interesting phrase, and that also comes out of Hebrews. He learned obedience to his Father through what he suffered. He suffered for us, and he learned, he grew. The Bible says that in that in, in Luke 2 passage where he goes to the temple with his parents and then they have that little discussion and he says, well, where else would I be? I'm going to be in my father's house. And then, and then it says that he went back home and he was obedient to his parents and he grew in stature with both God and man. He grew like we grow. He faced the hardships of life. He saw the pain that sin caused. He wept. He wept over his friends. He wept over an entire city. He became angry when those same people who he wept over because they didn't have a shepherd, he, he became angry when the Pharisees took advantage of them because they didn't have a shepherd. So he wept over them and then he got angry and he sat down and he twisted a, a whip and then he drove them out of the temple and he turned over tables in his righteous anger. He felt these things. He was fully God. He was truly man. He was the Word made flesh. God the Son, the second person of the eternal triune God, became a man clothed in flesh for a purpose, to die in the place of sinners as the crescendo of God's plan of redemption. This is the truth that baffles our minds, but this is the means through which God has determined to fulfill his plan and purpose of calling a people together that he would call his own family. And in order to do that, he's going to have to roll back the effects of sin. And he does that through his son. And it's in his son that every promise in Scripture finds its fulfillment. Um, now, I, I debated on whether or not to share this with you because I've shared this before, but I just find it really powerful. So if you've never heard it come from my lips, then... You're welcome. I think it's very helpful. If you have, then bear with us. But the scriptures make clear that the, there's one grand story that's being told. And the grand story involves a mystery at its center. And not only does John make that clear, but Paul makes that clear as well. That the mystery, which has been hidden, long ages past has been revealed in the Son of God coming and living and dying and being raised. So if we can think about some of those Old Testament stories and how Jesus is the fulfillment of them, it might look like this. And, and I didn't come up with this. This is a, a, a series of quotes from Tim Keller's teaching that he did on a preaching class or, or a class lecture on preaching Christ in the postmodern world. And here's what he says to try to help us understand how Jesus fulfills in his Humanity and his deity, how he fulfills the, the mysterious promise of God. He says this, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who though innocently slain has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. 
Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me, now we can look at God taking his son up on the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life in order to save his people. And Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, the innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible is really not about you. It's all about Him. I just love that quote. And we could continue on. The overwhelming trajectory of the biblical witness of redemptive history concerns a movement by God towards us. Every other religion in the world says, in order for you to find nirvana, in order for you to find peace, in order for you to achieve something, you're going to have to climb up the hill on your own. You're going to have to climb the ladder to heaven. And the gospel says absolutely hogwash. It's a great Greek word, hogwash. God's going to come down for us in the person of His Son, the God-man. The Father sends the Son. The Word became flesh to save us. God did not come uh, in the fullness of His glory, but rather He came in the humility of a man as a baby crying in the arms of a teenage mother who required feeding and changing and who would eventually be condemned to die as a criminal upon a cross. Jesus, in effect, hid His glory, limited Himself and then walk to the cross in our place. Jesus remained equal. He remained one with God, but He took on the form of a slave, Philippians tells us. He became one with us, and He shared in our limitations and our sorrows, and He bore our burdens. He experienced the temptations that we know too well, only He remained sinless to the day of His death, and in His death, He atoned for our sins and unites us to God. And God shows His stamp of approval to what Jesus accomplished when He raises Him from the dead. This is Jesus. And this is just the introduction. There's so much more for us to study. But I'm going to have to stop there because that's where my notes end. <laughs> so why don't I pray for us and then we can talk or you might, might ask some questions. Father God, thank You for revealing this to us. And thank You for giving us words to put our beliefs and understanding 
into something that makes sense in our minds. Help these truths to lodge themselves in our hearts and in our brains. And, and Lord, I pray that we would grow to love and appreciate all the more who Jesus is because of what you've re revealed to us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that all of this has been accomplished according to your purpose and plan and that we are part of that. And hold on to us. Keep us faithful and let us continue to grow in our love for Jesus and our obedience to Jesus as we follow him on that narrow and difficult road. I thank you for this time together tonight. I pray your blessing over us in Jesus' name. Amen. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Do you need those too? Okay. <laughs> You should have told me. Do you have your tablet with you? No, I left it at home. Oh. I was say, you should have told me. I would have sent them to you beforehand. Um, your dad usually reminds me, or my wife, if, if I didn't send out my notes on Sunday morning. He'll say, hey, I didn't get any email from you this morning. Yeah. Not a problem. Okay. I will. Could you send? Yeah. Hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> Praise God for that. Oh, okay. doubts about that myself. I still have doubts about it. I was doubting it this week. Yeah. Neither have I. Neither have I. Well, I, thank you for that encouragement. I will gladly send you the notes, but yeah, this has been this has been the most challenging study I've, I've ever done. I mean, I've been preaching here for 13 years, and it's been but it's been rich. It's been so good for my soul, so helpful. Um, I hope it's been a blessing to everyone else.